0: You're listening to the 3RRR Uncommon Sense Podcast with Amy Mullins. On the show, we chat with Ben Altham about federal politics, Claire Wright about the life of Lola Montez... Karis Thompson joined us in the studio for a chat and some live performances of songs from his latest album, Island. And then we spoke with Professor David Lindenmeyer AO from the ANU about his research into the Central Highlands Forest, which he's been doing for over 30 years, and the importance of the proposed Great Forest National Park in Victoria. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. Uh, we have in the studio with us the uh, always fabulous Ben Altham. Hi, Ben.
1: Oh, hi, Amy. How are you?
0: I'm good. What's happening?
1: Oh, you know, a bit of this, bit of
0: that. Bit of that. Yeah, it's yeah. only Tuesday. Yeah. Um, so we have uh, a few announcements that have been happening um, over the last week since we last spoke. Uh, one of them which uh, came out from the is it the fair work commission? The
1: fair work commission, yeah, yeah that's right.
0: Yep. Penalty rates. This is a pretty big issue. Um we saw that 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 labor actually initiated um this review of penalty rates. <laughs> what yeah. a classic. Yeah. Um, an own goal there. come back to bite them on the tush. Um so Ben, can you explain to us what exactly did the fair work commission say and recommend?
1: The Fair Work Commission reduced the penalty rates for hospitality and retail workers on Sundays. Uh, So this is a direct pay cut to hundreds of thousands of Australian workers, uh, most of them low paid um, and the reasoning behind the decision was that Sundays aren't as special as they used to be. Because we don't
0: go to church, is that it? That's kind of it,
1: yeah. Yeah, some um, pretty bizarre reasoning there from the Fair Work Commission. Of course, a few people pointed out that they uh, they put out this decision on a Thursday, mm. not a Sunday. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think... Um, it's a pretty neoliberal kind of reasoning basically so that um, the Fair Work Commission um, under the coalition has been stacked with more conservative judges um, Mm -hmm. in previous years and um, now that's sort of flowing through to some of their decision-making processes and, yeah, basically they've, they've fallen for the line that Sunday is... You know, should be just like a Saturday. Sunday is not a special day, and uh, the penalty rates uh, shouldn't have to be as high for, for retail and hospitality workers.
0: Mm. And how much have they reduced it by?
1: Um, so it's quite significant. In some in some cases, it's from two hundred percent, like double time, mm. down to the normal Saturday rate. Um, in many cases, so um, yeah, it's it's potentially a significant pay cut for people who are working on Sundays a lot.
0: There's no double time left, is there? No. Yeah, they were all either 1.5s or 1.75s.
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah
0: which is, you know, these people are are working in retail and hospitality, some of the hardest working Australians in terms of the gruelling hours and also physical work, apart from obviously physical labourers. um, You know, it's a fairly tiring job and also dealing with the nice public, (laughs) as I can recall, working once in retail. It's a little bit challenging. Some pretty bizarre
1: reasoning too from the Fair Work Commission. So one of the things they said was that, uh, you know, uh, hoteliers and cafe owners, they would they would use the pay cut to employ more staff. There's no evidence for that. And, and in fact, there was no evidence presented to the Fair Work Commission that that would happen. It seems pretty clear that what will happen is it will just be more profits for, for the owners and the employers. Um, and if you look at the stats, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong, particularly of hospitality. It's going gangbusters you know, obviously cafes open and close all the time, but um, in terms of the aggregate statistics from the ABS, uh, retail trade in that sector is up sort of five, six percent year on year since 2013. So there's no evidence that these supposedly onerous penalty rates are penalising, you know, cafes at all.
0: Yeah. And I mean, are they going to even stay open longer? I just don't think this is a, a legitimate argument either.
1: No, I mean, if you walk down the, the average high street in Melbourne, you know, you can, on a Sunday, it's not like everything's shut, shut up. Yeah, You know, <laughs> most of the cafes are open and doing a roaring trade. Hugely. Yeah, so uh, it's hard to see how this will change uh, any of the opening hours really.
0: No, and how has Labor dealt with this? Because, you know, that's um, not really a good look. Uh, we had, was it, who was on Insiders over the weekend? Was it Chris Bowen or someone else? I can't remember now. They've all blurred into one. But there was someone from Labour, I think it was Chris Bowen, coming on and saying trying to avoid, I guess, the the point which is that Labour initiated this review. Why on earth oh that was right, it was Chris Bowen. And he said that um that, that they built they went to Bill Shorten in January to, you know, say we actually disagree now with this penalty rate review and, and cut and, and Bill Shorten agreed and then they changed their position. What do you say about that?
1: It's a bit of a mess for Labor on this one. I mean, I remember back before the election, Shorten was saying, well, we're going to abide by the umpire's decision. So uh, clearly now the decision's come in, they're not happy with it. Uh, It's a, a very strange position for a Labor government to be... Uh, you know to be basically supporting the umpire that's stripping away wages and conditions from workers so yeah a bit of a bit of a problem there for labor I mean a more intellectually honest position from labor might have been simply to say we support higher pay for workers whatever the particularities of it is but you know that that's part of the thing is that the Fair Work Commission was set up by Labor. This is a Labor institution. This was r- the replacement for work choices that Julia Gillard implemented in 2009. So there's a fair bit of sort of, I guess, um, political capital invested in the Fair Work Commission by Labor. Um, But the problem is, you know, the coalition's come in, they've stacked it um, and they've allowed it to become quite a conservative body. So it's now doing the bidding of employers rather than unions and workers.
0: Mm, And they've obviously perhaps assumed that it would fall in their favour, which is obviously not something you would do when there's a 50-50 chance.
1: Well, I mean, I think... That is a fair call, actually. I mean, because the decision is clearly a poor one. Most economists are, are pretty gobsmacked. I mean, let's uh, let's leave the sort of industrial relations side of it aside for one moment. Let's look at the economics of it. Uh, wages in Australia are growing at their slowest rate for two decades, almost on record, in fact. So wage growth is very, very low. And then The economy is far from robust. It's doing okay. It's sort of chugging along. But one of the things holding the economy back is that workers aren't getting paid very much. Now you then inject a pay cut into that into that mix. I mean, that's only going to hurt the economy. I think, and most economists agree. You know, it's going to hurt the take-home pay of lower middle class and lower class workers. So it's hard to see how that can be good. Uh, You know, people are going to spend less now because they've got less money in their pocket. So you know, even on the economics of it, you know, it doesn't really stack up.
0: No, it doesn't, and and it certainly uh, is concerning because these are also usually underemployed workers, um, potentially you know either casuals or part timers who are seeking more work uh, because they don't they can't find enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, and we've seen a number of scandals in recent months uh, with very, very big companies listed on the stock exchange not paying their workers properly, mm. not paying them penalty rates at all, not Getting paying them to them pay their wage. wages back. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so there's widespread wage fraud going on, particularly in retail and hospitality. We've seen that at Domino's. We've seen that at Seven Eleven. Uh, so wages are not what they should be already. So mm. you you put this into the mix. I mean, it's only going to get worse, I think.
0: Yeah, and I mean, let's talk about um, Centrelink because that's what happens when you don't have a job um, or you're struggling to make a minimum amount of income. Um, we have chatted qu- for quite a while about the Centrelink issue, and it's gone. It had gone quiet for a few weeks, but uh, yesterday we saw a, a big development um, in terms of privacy. And and an issue there around a person who wrote um, an article in Fairfax an op-ed to say this is my experience with Centrelink it's been quite distressing um, she's had you know the big run around and then we've seen Fairfax print uh, an article yesterday to contradict her claims using private information that's not now not so private from Centrelink.
1: Yeah, this is a very, very disturbing case, Amy. Um, So uh, it originally began with an article by Andy Fox. She's an economist and a feminist. Um, She's reasonably well-known, I suppose, um, amongst a certain kind of more uh, educated crew. You know, um, she's known for her very nuanced and intelligent takes on... On feminism and, and some of the issues around being a working mother. Um, but she had some serious issues with Centrelink. I was Centrelink debt, as we've discussed many times on the show. Um, very, very difficult for her to get her Centrelink um, issues addressed by Centrelink. Difficulties. And It was a
0: complex one, wasn't it?
1: Was it was a complex one related to, and actually, this is a problem that many women face, it related to a breakup with her former partner. Um, because their incomes were no longer combined, therefore there were issues to work out around family tax benefit. And, you know, it took a long time for her to resolve those issues. So she wrote... Uh, a very balanced and, and, and really quite a subtle piece uh, explaining the difficulties for even her, a highly educated, professional, white-collar person, to try and deal with the Link bureaucracy, the maze of that bureaucracy. Um, and then in a very disturbing development we saw uh, a Canberra Times journalist by the name of Paul Malone write uh, what can only be described as a hit piece, really, a a sort of an attack article against her in the Canberra Times last week where um, he was basically able to disclose all of this private information about her case. And after a few inquiries by a number of journalists, what we found out was that Centrelink had told him this information about... Andy Fox's case, not with her permission, in fact, he'd rung her and asked her, I spoke to both Paul Malone and Andy Fox last night investigating this, he'd rung her, he'd asked her to, to verify these details that he had presented from Centrelink to her about her case, and she said, no, I don't want you writing this article, please. He went ahead and published and um, we found out yesterday via The Guardian that the, the department had briefed him, had actually disclosed her private information to Paul Malone, the journalist, um, in response to her criticism. So they, they very plainly said, we wanted to set the record straight. We disagreed with some of the details that she wrote about her own dealings of Centrelink. So, I mean, and this is a remarkable development, I think, for a government department to release private information about a citizen critic in order to attack them through the media. I mean, I think that is deeply disturbing. It's a deeply worrying development for Australian civil liberties. It
0: hugely is. And, Ben, what exact powers do they have under the act to release this information?
1: Yeah well they say that they do in fact have the power to do it under the act so there's a bunch of social security legislation that governs this kind of stuff and one of the clauses is that the secretary of the department can in fact release private information um, to correct the record as they say in other words to in this case to attack a critic. Uh, So I, I think it, while it's probably legal under the letter of the law, it's a deeply concerning abuse of the spirit of federal privacy legislation. And I think more importantly even than that, um, the power imbalance here is really, really worrying. So the fact that a giant government department with dozens and dozens of paid spin doctors have actually briefed a, journalism, a journalist to attack a private citizen because that citizen has written a critical article about the government department. I mean, this is getting into the kind of stuff that we worry about with Donald Trump's America. I mean, this is a a, a very concerning development uh, where we have the state attacking a citizen.
0: Well, it's clearly hit a nerve um, for Centrelink and the government. Um, But I think you know, if we just sit back and actually look at this and empathise and understand how it must be, if you were the individual that all of your personal information about a particular case uh, was released and then made public and then part of a discussion and debate about, you know, how truthful and honest you were, um, you know, that's pretty shocking. Um, you know, she, as you say, it was a very nuanced piece um, and and it was part of the debate and part of the overall criticism from a range of people. Um, people and and news outlets at the time that it came out. So it does seem quite uh, personal um, and certainly I'm sure it would feel quite personal.
1: Oh, it's fundamentally personal. I mean, it's an absolutely personal attack on Andy Fox, on her character, um, on the veracity of the claims that she's made. Uh, you know, I think you know if she wanted to go down that route she's got an excellent case for a defamation suit here because her character's been impugned um that's a problem for fairfax town the track i would argue and i think some big questions going to be asked about the canberra times the editorial processes that have gone on here um you know whether this was to by the canberra times but more importantly uh what sort of Journalism is it when you're essentially taking the side of a giant government bureaucracy to attack the character of a critic of that bureaucracy? I mean, that is not the kind of journalism that I was taught um, when I was learning journalism from people like, say, Wendy Bacon, uh, a contributing editor at New Matilda. Uh, that's not the kind of journalism that we kind of endorse at New Matilda. And, and, and there's a power imbalance here, a massive power imbalance Um, And I might add, by the way, that the the attack piece itself uh, raises very, very trivial issues that are essentially... um, It's not actually true even what Paul Malone's written, I think. I think that's deeply in dispute whether what he... Because he's just repeated what Centrelink have, have told him and that in itself is a distortion of the case. And as Andy Fox pointed out to me last night on the phone... Here is a situation where a journalist has got her private file. He's got her file. She doesn't. She doesn't have access to her own details. Mm. It's been very difficult for people caught up in the Centrelink maze to get access to their own file. They've had to FOI their own files. Meanwhile, Centrelink's going around disclosing private files to journalists in order to attack critics. I mean... It is outrageous and it's really concerning, I think, that we see government departments be this politicised. Mm. And that that is a real worry, I think, for where the Department of Human Services under Alan Tudge is at. You know, and... and If you don't mind, Amy, I mean, I'm just going to issue the challenge. Alan Tudge is a Melbourne MP. If he ever wants to come on this show and talk about (laughs) Centrelink with me and you, that that, that offer is open, I think. Feel free, yeah,
0: absolutely. We should have this discussion.
1: I mean, I think the Minister has a lot to answer for here. We know that the Minister approved the release of this information. You know, I really think this is a concerning development and I'd, I'd like to see him answer his critics. Alan Tudge has been very difficult to speak to in terms of media. Um, I've been trying to talk to Alan Tudge since December to talk to him about Centrelink issues. Uh, he has been very reluctant to speak on this and yet... Here we have uh, the media being briefed about uh, a private individual's private information.
0: Mm. Yeah, there there really are no words at the moment to properly express this kind of development, um, but... Hopefully, Ben uh, will check New Matilda in the coming day or so to see your piece on this issue. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm writing a piece with New Matilda on this today. And I might email Alan Tudge too <laughs> and, and see if he wants to come on.
0: <laughs> that would be very interesting. Well, you know, we should um, talk about this and the actual Centrelink issue itself, the robo debt collector issue.
1: It's still going on. I it mean, is.
0: Yeah, it hasn't, um, you know, gone. No, gone no away the government's at all. not backed down on any of no. this. No. Yeah. Yeah so let's uh, let's keep an eye on it and also find out you know how Accurate, um, their their hit rate has been uh, because that's also in dispute and hasn't really been released uh, properly. And then just finally, um, Tony Abbott, gosh, he uh, has been in the media quite a lot recently, Ben, yes, particularly on a- Sky News. It's
1: almost as though he feels a little bit deprived of attention, mm. Mm. missing the limelight, perhaps,
0: possibly. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, I mean, there's there's actually deep problems within the Liberal Party as we know, and they're only getting worse. And there's now pretty clearly a destabilisation campaign being mounted by Tony Abbott. He's clearly trying to destabilise the leadership of Malcolm Turnbull. A friend of mine in Canberra sent me a photo last night of Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin having dinner together Uh, Who knows what they were talking about? But uh, we do know that both Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin have been very vocal in the media recently, attacking Malcolm Turnbull's leadership. Of course, the the coalition had a bad poll this week. Now, I don't like to get into too much sort of poll commentary, but um, there's no doubt the MPs care about the polls. Mm. They care about them very deeply. And And the
0: primary vote's pretty low.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very, very low. It's their worst ever, apparently, in yeah. a news poll. So, 34,
0: I believe. Yeah,
1: I mean, so if an election was held this weekend, yeah. of course it's not going to be, but, yeah, the coalition's in trouble in the polls. We can agree with that. Mm. They're well behind. Um, and this is destabilising. It's destabilising. It was destabilising for Tony Abbott when Tony Abbott was behind in the polls and it's destabilising for Malcolm Turnbull now that he's behind in the polls. And the government's had a bad year. Yet again, they've started the year pretty poorly, so... Um, and, and one interesting thing that we've sort of decided over the last few weeks, we've had a few polls come in over the government's climate and energy scare campaign, is that that's not working either. So interesting. people seem to like that's renewable good. energy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and so the government's attacks on renewables that we've talked about don't seem to be cutting through. Yeah.
0: And we just saw an ANU study come out yesterday, yet again, reaffirming the fact that, uh, that uh, wind and solar has won uh, the... competition if there was one um, for energy sources and that it's much cheaper now and will continue to be cheaper to have large-scale solar and wind farms uh, and also that that baseload question is not an issue and can be resolved with hydro and that kind of uh, thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, yeah, the ANU report is really good. Mm -hmm. I read it. Um, If you get a chance to have a look at it online, it's it's well worth a read. Basically, it says what we already knew, that it's possible to get to 100% renewables and it's cheaper to do that than it is to continue down the current road. One of, I think, the great myths about the current energy debate is that somehow fossil fuels are cheaper. They're not cheaper now. And they're not going to be cheaper in the future. And there's a range of reasons for it. But the the main reason is actually pretty simple. It's technology. You know, the technology now is so good for wind and solar that it's just cheaper. It's just generating cheaper electrons. Mm. Um, And so it doesn't really matter what the government says, how many lumps of coal they bring into parliament. That's not going to change the fundamental economics.
0: No. Well... Economics are on our side, Ben. <laughs> for a change, <laughs> <laughs> definitely the facts are on the side, on our side. Um, so yeah, and we'll uh, we'll be chatting more about the environment uh, a bit later on. So yeah, great. Um, thanks so much, Ben, for coming in. Uh, we have an absolutely wonderful, very special guest. Um, so pleased to have her on the show. Uh, We've Claire Wright, um, is a, a historian at La Trobe University. You may be quite aware of her work um, from uh, the Stella Prize because um, she wrote a fantastic book um, about female rebels of Eureka Um, and it's really great to see that she's um, highlighting women's contribution um, and actually you know I guess rewriting um, our history in some ways to make sure that women are, are accurately represented so I'm very excited now to chat with Claire thanks for joining us Claire Hi, Amy, how are you going? Uh, it's a pl- um, great. It's a pleasure to have you on um, and uh, thanks for dialing in.
2: Uh, it, it's great to be here with you today to be able to talk to you in advance of this uh, lecture that I'm giving at the Melbourne Free University on Thursday night.
0: Yes, and it is uh, fantastic not only because um, you know you're kicking things off with such a fantastic topic um, on Lola Montez, um, but also that uh, it's full of your Latrobe colleagues um, who all happen to be women.
2: Yeah, it just worked out that way, funnily (laughs) enough. It wasn't curated in that way. Um, We decided that our department, the Department of History and Archaeology at La Trobe, would put on a course as part of the Melbourne Free University. La Trobe is very committed to uh, public engagement and and getting academic knowledges um, out there in the community and being very communicative and and hands-on. And we decided to put this course on, and it was curated by one of my colleagues, Liz Connor and uh, and we decided it would be called History Matters and would look at popular topics uh, from the colonial era and through to World War One. And then when colleagues put up their hands to give papers from their own expertise, as it as it turned out, um, it was the eight of us. Uh, female members of the department there are more uh, women than that but it it was us that ended up um, having the program that was picked um, by the Melbourne Free University as being the most interesting and accessible topics
0: well I'm not surprised. Um, It's great to see that La Trobe's doing so well uh, for women in history. It's certainly a passion of mine. Um, And Australian history in particular, because a lot of people um, have probably been scarred by their high school experience of Australian history and think that it's not particularly interesting and uh, quite boring. But it's not boring at all, Claire, is it?
2: Oh no! You know it's something that I hear so often, Amy, that people have that experience of high school, and and it's it's really very disheartening and upsetting because you know there's that whole stereotype that Australia hasn't got a history, you know that it's such a short history that nothing happened, that nothing mattered, and and they find it you know really uninspiring and. And I think that it's it's partly that the stories that we're taught in in history, the actual content, just doesn't really resonate with people, and and that that is is a real shame because. So much happened. It's so interesting—the characters, the movements, the, the 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 agency, the the ideas, the motivations that people had. Um, you know, these, these are human stories, and they're the, they're the story of us, and, and told with with vigor and with with passion, and particularly when told and grounded in the archives and what the what the actual historical record shows us about what went on, rather than the, the mythologies that are built up around the past. Um, when when that comes to the fore, I think that students really do become incredibly engaged, um, mm. and they also see that they're part of history as well. It's not this. It's not this. Um you know abstract and, and removed kind of um, theory it's actually what people do every day we're making history. every one of us is making history every day
0: absolutely and there is so much colour in life in Australian history and this particular topic um, that you'll be discussing is really very colourful and and complex it's not simple it's not as simple as we thought um, and, uh, and Lola Montez you know I had heard of her um, and I i I have actually i went to ballarat um and saw the the performance that you referenced at sovereign hill um could you explain to us your so i'm just referencing your your piece in overland in 2009 which explains the background to your your i guess introduction to lola montez and how there was more to the woman than you initially realized could you share with us that story yeah, well,
2: like most people, the way that I had encountered Lola Montez was at at Sovereign Hill, uh, the the outdoor. A historical theme park in in Ballarat that does such a wonderful job uh, of educating people and entertaining people about our colonial gold rush um, history. And the way that I'd come across Lola Montez was as the woman who stood in the street, and this literally plays out in Ballarat with costumed actors who who do this every day. Uh, Lola Montez, uh, who was um, is portrayed as as being um, a, a fiery Spanish. Uh, actress and who horsewhips literally gets out of her, her whip and whips the editor of the Ballarat Times who has given her a bad review for her famous and notorious spider dance. So she's she's depicted as being the, the showgirl, the good time girl who comes to the diggings and she has nuggets of gold thrown at her feet by the diggers and uh, but in a fit of, of vanity and spite when she gets a review she she horsewhips the editor of the Ballarat Times and that's the way that she's depicted and that she's come down through our historical memory and when I started to look into Lola Montez and going as I said back to the archives back to the historical records and 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 writing Lola's story from the ground up I found a very different picture from from that kind of good time girl from the, the high-kicking show girl that has that kind of a bit you know naughty and saucy element about
0: her and um and one of the things that sparked your interest was you had a chat with uh as you say your german born and raised stepmother and you asked whether she knew about lola montez and her perception of lola was very different from our understanding and and that performance at sovereign hill
2: it, it, it's it's fascinating because I, after I started to do some research about Lola and realised that she was such an incredibly complex character whose life in in Ballarat is is but a blip on the radar of her of her um, incredibly adventurous and high stakes uh, international life. I, I did ask my my German-born grandmother and um, and and she said uh, she said. But Lola Montez, of course, we all learn about her in school. She, she was um, a revolutionary. She was a Democrat. She was part of the revolutions of, uh, of Germany. She is part of the political fabric of Bavaria. And, and, you know, this just completely floored me because here in Australia we'd learnt about her as being, as being a showgirl, as being, you know, almost akin to, to a prostitute in some kind of way. And, uh, and here she was as having been depicted in, in a German education as being part of their revolutionary political past. So, of course, this just intrigued me further and I, I really then needed to find out who the real Lola was.
0: Yeah, and I mean, she has really been sexualized in many respects um, in the de- way that she's depicted in popular culture but also just in general. Um, and one of the, like she, there are so many great quotes directly from Lola about life and um, and how she perceives her life and, and others. And one, um, one I really liked from your piece was um, th- that uh, in an autobiographical lecture tour in 1858, Lola said, a woman like a man of true courage instinctively prefers to face the public deeds of her life rather than by cowardly shifts to skulk and hide away from her own historical presence. That's a great level of self-awareness and self-reflection. Lola
2: was incredibly uh, perceptive about the way that, it, in a sense, history was recording her. Um, she was, she did have nuggets of gold thrown at her feet um, by the diggers, but she also had vitriol absolutely heaped upon her um, here in 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 Australia, in particular. And uh, she was called all sorts of names, and um, she was derided by the press. I mean, of course, this was also part of her uh, incredibly masterful self publicity she she attracted controversy like a lightning rod and and she didn't she didn't shy away from that by any means. Um, in, in, in fact, the, the people who you know, organised her tour is banked on the fact that you know, good and bad press is good press, and because it got people along. So she was, she very much played into it in the way that you know, say we might think in the modern day sense, maybe Madonna, you know, or somebody, in, you know, she she doesn't. It's not like she hides away from controversy, but at the same time, she was Lola was very aware of the way that she was being remembered and and she wanted to write herself into history on this big on the on the big stage into this big political narrative of of world history and she in fact did that uh, quite literally she wrote a play called Lola in Bavaria and that's what she performed when she was here in Melbourne she performed this play in which she is a central character who is as she did in real life She was um, the lover of of King Ludwig of Bavaria. Uh, She was part of the 1848 revolution. She was a Democrat. She helped to bring down the Jesuit led aristocracy um, of Bavaria at the time. This is part of the, the, the people's revolutions of 1848. And she wrote herself into this big world history, world historical narrative. And again, she was derided than that she, she, you know, people thought that she was putting on airs in all sorts of ways, and and getting ahead of herself. She was that that women weren't supposed to take on these these huge roles as being historical actors and agents of change, and so she was constantly put down by the press and and considered to be quite mad, which. Possibly she was. She was. She was also uh, infected with syphilis, and it, and it appears that she had was suffering the symptoms of that well before she um, died of it at a very early age.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you say she was called names. Um, you know, one of the one journalist called her a female Lucifer, half woman, half man, and half untamable beast. I don't think that makes one. I think it makes one point five. But um, you know, that she was more than one woman. She exactly. She was she was a huge character. Um, you can just see by everyone's description of her. And you know, she. I mean, Australia, Australian society, um, I guess, was conservative in the sense that. Uh, in terms of women's place, um, they were seen as needing to be in in the interior, in the domestic space, um, and you were either that or you were, you know, a bit of a potential prostitute. Like, uh, it, it kind of, that's how, it, obviously, she came across to some people or that she didn't know her her place. Um, but what do you... Well, what is really... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say what, what's really interesting about that is that
2: that, that was the typical Victorian-era place um, of a woman. But all of that was turned on its head in, in the Victorian gold rush. So the thing about Lola when she came to Australia is that what she did was not stand out from the crowd, but she, in a weird way, personified the crowd. Because what you can see from all of the writing about Australia particularly Victoria in this particular era in and we're talking here about the mid to late 1850s this gold rush era is that it was a time of rapid social change of incredible cultural and social flux that had a very gendered element to it because women were rampantly fleeing their place in life yeah. This is a time when, when women were throwing all those social roles open and were grasping at all of the other opportunities that were available to them in this gold rush society. So Lola was remarkably here a woman of her time and and in, in, in a sense she becomes the kind of focal point for a whole imperial anxiety about what was going on down there in Australia. Uh, you know, there's... Um, uh, a, a goldfield balladeer, Charles Thatcher, who was the one who was sort of singing songs on the goldfields, but also re- re- recording what's going on on the goldfields. He's a kind of um, a raconteur, uh, but also a social chronicler in a way. And 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 he sang a song that said um, that that talked about. The gals that come out to Australia to roam have much higher notions that when they're at home, and and this reflected uh, a whole line of of social observation that you can get from people's diaries, from from newspapers, from letters they sent home um, uh, about the. Um, another person called it the emancipated wenches, <laughs> and that they were smoking cigars, and they were riding on horseback, and they were dressing in gaudy. Uh, costumes that were un, unflattering or unbecoming, but really they were just sort of ostentatious. Um, they were really out there women of this age, and so Lola strangely held up a mirror to this society that people were frightened of they were frightened about what was going to happen um, and and so she she was she sort of refracted the zeitgeist and and therefore, in some um, sense of in order to protect the status quo, Lola had to be the one that was the the, um, the scapegoat for this broader social and cultural anxiety
0: and is that how you explain um, the way that we have remembered her it has that kind of um, you know scapegoat um, rationale is that the reason why uh, we now we've seen her in in a way that uh, Germans haven't seen her like how can you explain Australia's uh, view of Lola Montez throughout the the 20th century Uh, is it just because historians weren't focused on her and didn't look more deeply into primary sources or what do you think well I think I think it is that but I think that I think essentially
2: mythology is lazy so I think that that once there's an image that is struck, um, and and particularly if it's a, um, a highly sexualised one for women, which you know becomes then a, a selling point in in all sorts of other ways. You know, there's a uh, a poster that I walk past every morning when I'm walking into the history department at La Trobe, and it's a, it was the show poster for Manning Clark's History of Australia the musical that was on in 1988 I think it was and it's a it is like a chorus line of characters from Australian history and there's Billy Hughes and and there's Henry Lawson and there's um, an Anne Zach and um, and there's Carolyn Chisholm I think there's only two women Carolyn Chisholm and Lola Montez and and there's Lola in this lineup with her arm around Billy Hughes and she's got this huge bosom, and then in a low-cut frilly red dress, and and high cut. She's wearing stockings, and you know, in her era, nobody commented on her bosom. Uh, what was commented on was her eyes. She was she apparently had these incredibly striking, um, huge eyes, blue eyes framed in long black lashes, and that's what everybody um, at the time commented on. But she's come down to us. In this shorthand and I think it becomes a kind of mythological and an and image-based shorthand um, for representing something about Australian history. And, and I do think that that is intellectually lazy and I think it is beholden to every generation to rewrite their history and the way that you do that is from the ground up. So I would say that if there was a, a social and cultural reason why Lola held this particular position in the gold rush era we have to ask ourselves whether that is still relevant today whether we still need to see to to box up rebellious women um in 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 this sexualized way that actually diminishes and um and demarcates them as wrong and bad and transgressive what what Purpose does that still serve us? We might be able to analyse what purpose that served in the 1850s um, for uh, for uh, you know an imperial power like like Britain, who was already afraid of what was going on down there in the colonies, and particularly now what this gold, what had happened during this um, extraordinary gold rush. But is that still relevant? Why do we still brand powerful women? Particularly politically powerful women, um, as being um, as being dangerous and and in some way sexually transgressive, and we can see that this does still happen. You only have to look at the way that that Julia Gillard was treated, um, and and that that other powerful political women have been treated to see that this is still a reflex. But you have to ask yourself whether it's still necessary.
0: Mm, And uh, yeah, you're right, history um, has a great deal to teach us about this issue and also uh, it it explains some reasons why women don't enter politics in the first place Um, because they're subjected to very different kinds of criticisms than the men are. Um, very gendered criticisms. Claire, thank you so much for sharing um, this fascinating story. I know you're going to go into a great deal of depth into this in your lecture, uh, which is coming up. It's on the 2nd of March, uh, which is the Thursday, at 6.30 till 8pm at the Alderman, which is in East Brunswick. So anyone li- living close to R, it's just down the road, actually. And uh, this series, History Matters, is actually running up until the 6th of April April so there's going to be some really fantastic lectures um, from a range of uh, academics at La Trobe University um, so I encourage everyone to check out the Melbourne Free University website to see the full lineup um, but yeah thank you Claire for joining us and I'm um, all the best of luck and can't wait to hear how it goes and the types of questions that people ask after your lecture.
2: It it will be wonderful and I also have a great slideshow of images of Lola Montez and and people will get to see those sparkling eyes that people always commented on.
0: Wonderful. Well, we can't wait to see the real Lola. Have a wonderful day, Claire. Thanks for it very much. (laughs) Thanks so much, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins and the show is Uncommon Sense. You just heard a song there from Karis Thompson's latest album. Uh, It's called... Razor Barati and uh, the album is Island and um, I, as I said I uh, I saw Karis on Saturday at the Piping Hot Chicken Shop in Ocean Grove which is despite the the name that it sounds a bit random it's actually an excellent venue for live music uh, and uh, certainly what a great crowd as well and I'm very uh, fortunate to have Karis Thompson in with us in Melbourne at the moment um, and he joins me right now, actually. So uh, I'm just going to figure out exactly which mics we've got. And yeah, great. Hello, Hey, Karis. Hey, 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 <laughs> thanks so much for joining us.
3: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Um, so first of all, uh, you're you're in Melbourne, which um, you know it's somewhat of a hometown. I know it's not where you were from, but you you lived in Melbourne for quite a while.
3: Yeah, we're here for 14 years, and um, I just uh, with my second child came along we just went back to uh wa for a year i've been there probably almost two years now but you know as soon as i land in Melbourne, i just go ah Culture, yeah. humans, people <laughs> that get it, you know. <laughs>
0: so totally. It's like,
3: oh, this is a... Yeah, so this really feels like home. In it. It's a strange strange way this actually feels more like home than um,
0: Frio does. Does it? Yeah. Yeah. Because you grew... Well, you were born in Fremantle. Yeah, yep. Um, and you also had at some time that you lived in Pepperminati uh, yeah. in the Northern Territory, which is sounds really fascinating. It's such a small um, town, I guess you could call it. Uh, how, what... Did that influence? What kind of influence did that have on your um, your personal development, but also then your your musical um, development? Growing up in a, a rural area and being exposed to so many different aspects of Australia.
3: Yeah, well, I mean Pepinati, it's um, it's a really sp- small Aboriginal community, and it's um, I guess the big thing about it is it's on Aboriginal land. So um, if you've ever been to the Northern Territory. You know the Stuart Highway goes straight up the guts of it, and you go sort of east, and you get to Arnhem Land. And uh, if you go west, once you cross the Daly River, you're in another part of Aboriginal country. And to to go there, you actually need to have a permit, so you just can't drive in there. So it's I mean, there's all these things about it that are just really, really cool. And in a lot of ways, the territory was way ahead of its time with all this kind of stuff, land rights, and uh, so it was beautiful to whilst in Australia, basically growing up, you know, in a in a different land in a way and um, so I was the only white kid growing up for sort of four years there and I think that, that's good for any child I think it's good for any human being to have a different experience um, where they see other cultures and to also be you know it's that thing when you're white middle class you're, you're so you're everywhere you know like and it's, it's good to be on the minority for <laughs> for yeah. a change and and maybe I would like to think it's maybe had some sort of effect on the way I view the world. It certainly had a big effect on the way I view Aboriginal culture and um, our relationship with it in Australia.
0: Mm, and you have a great song that mentions it, uh, Yangi, which is uh, certainly one you can rock out to.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, that's the sort of musical thing. I mean, it, it was funny because that was such a big part of my childhood, if, if, if you like. And then um, and then I grew up in the city and moved back to Frio. And um, so there was always sort of a bit of a disconnect in a way. And um I went back when I was about twenty. I went up to Darwin, and it's like uh, I did. Hit, that's where I did lots and lots and lots of gigs. Like you know, the Beatles went to Hamburg. <laughs> I went to I went to Darwin. <laughs> I wish I'd got as good as the Beatles, but uh, and you know, you do these four-hour, just horrendous cover gigs, kind of things. Yeah. And um, but anyway, when I was up there, I went back out to Pep and I sort of re got in touch with you know, it was like re got in touch with my childhood, I guess. And um, and that's when uh, I got. I sort of really got into the music and I love that um, top-end country, top-end reggae. It's a very peculiar Mm -hmm. Aboriginal style of music that we have in Australia. It's it's just really cool, you know, and... um, And that's when I learnt that song, Yangi, um, which was taught to me by a guy called Johnny Wilson.
0: Right. Because your your music really defies categorisation. Yeah, it's been a problem. (laughs) Yeah, it is a little bit too, you know, because everyone wants to simplify or, you know, put you into a box. Well, that's Mm. what Karis is. Um, And, you know, I I know that you've described your music as folk rock and um, reggae and some funk in there and there's just so much happening and alternative indie. Yeah. But, you know... And it really depends on the song and the album um, and the different musical instruments you you employ. And you know, how have you seen your development as a musician based on the like the kind of um, influences that you've had? So you know, your first EP. it's fantastic. Uh, oh. My sister and I still play it in the car. You're the one that bought it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. We've still got it. Um, and and Darwin Jam. Gosh, I love that song. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, such a, a really interesting EP because, um, you know, it started out your, I guess, um, you know, journey and then you're moving yeah. on to Acoustic at the Norfolk in 2003, which um, really was a huge deal. But it, it brought out mandolin, the fiddle, harmonica, uh, acoustic guitar, you know there's just so much um and and keys obviously the piano um you've had a band for some portion of your career early on um so you know when we talk about categories and music styles and influences um how would you perceive yourself and I don't want you to have to self-select into a category so feel free to be broad (laughs) and open (laughs) uh yeah
3: I mean it's it's a it's an interesting one i mean when i start you know i started playing music when i was 12 and as soon as i finished school i was playing in bands in um in pubs and you know 18 19 and that was like the era of the band you know like so it was everyone had bands it was like the 90s you know and um i never really had this idea that you could be like a singer songwriter with a band it was like you gotta have a band you know it's a band together and mm. and you know it's that, all that was no you know there was the internet but it, Didn't really work. I didn't know how to use it. (laughs) It You know, it was mobile phones, but they were like huge bricks, and uh, Mm. so it was a different. It was a different time. You didn't, you know. Now it's it's so. If someone starts playing music, it's all out there. They get on the internet. This is how you get famous. This is how you tour. This is how you do this and that. Whereas, for me, for most of my career, and especially in those early days, it was like you just work it out as you go along, you know, you, you hear a cool band, you've got to go to the pub to see it, you can't, there's no MySpace or whatever. So it was sort of like that with my music. Um, I'd always written songs on acoustic guitars and I'd take it to whichever band I was in. And as I got older, I guess I got more confident and just like, oh, hang on, I'm a singer-songwriter, that's what I do. And I always tried to find, I guess, the form or the genre that best suits, suits the song. Um, and I guess I've managed to get it more... You know, the more albums you get together, it just becomes, well, that's my music, it's a ma- mash of a few things. But essentially I, I describe myself as an Australian songwriter, not because I'm like a um, Aussie, Aussie, oi, 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 nationalistic fool, but um, just because I think there's something very particular that Australians do with our songwriting. I'm a huge you know, Tim Rogers fan, Paul Kelly, Mick Thomas, my mate Nick Barker. And there's something Australians do when we write songs. I think it's very direct and it's very empathetic and it's also very humble and um we we use you know the way we use words we really just strip it down to the, the less words as he says dribbling on um no. so <laughs> I, that's you know so I, I really approach it from the song now and um and i then i use whatever i need uh, around it to make the song work and with this new new record island i think it's probably the most cohesive one i've ever done you know
0: um, yeah yeah, this as in the the sound. Um, the, the sound yeah. runs
3: through the whole thing. And, you know, people do, they do need to identify what, what something is. I mean, a fan doesn't care. Like, you know, they, you can just do whatever an album can go on. And some of my favourite albums are like that. I've got a few Steve Earle records that go like that. But mm. I think when you're trying to present this sort of cohesive presence or um, piece of art... It, it, it is good to have a bit of a flow and I think I finally got that with this one
0: yeah well I mean that you certainly have with this album um, but but also not to dis- discount your earlier work I think it's great that it has that diversity too yeah which yeah. you see in your live performances um, because you know there's a great mix uh, there and also we're very privileged um, with you here now to have um, the band to you know bring to life some of these um, tracks on, from your new album yeah, yeah. Um, and one of one of those People, uh, we saw Nathan Gaunt, who's um, yeah. opening for you. What a character! He's so fantastic. <laughs> yeah, really talented.
3: Yeah, I mean, he, that's I just directly quoted Nathan. I mean, I've known Nathan since I was 18 years old, and um, you know, um, that's what he said that to me. You know, back when we started, you heard about a cool band, you had to go and see it, and yeah. that's why gigs were always half filled with other musicians because that was the only way you could hear other music. You know, like the idea of doing a record when we were like twenty years old it was like you just had to be signed, you know. Yeah. So I've known Nathan since then. He's just one of the most talented musicians I know, one of the most talented guys I know, really, I mean. And um yeah, if anyone wants to check him out, just just Google him. Um yeah, just this incredible sort of Jeff Buckley kind of voice. Mm. But you know, that sort of you know, but he's got he's got this sort of um bit of a more of a Zeppelin approach to his singing and just incredible guitar playing. So I've been trying to get in my band for like <laughs> for years and then Tiz yeah. to, to I was like, you do the support, come and play the band. And just when he heard the record actually, he's been one of the biggest supporters of this album. He's just like, I just want to help you get this album out there. Mm. So, you know, oh, <laughs> I'm the big, <beginner. laughs> you need a good guitar player, <laughs> I can play guitar, I'll come and do it.
0: Yeah, well, elec- the electric guitar is pretty special. Yeah. Um, and we heard Crashland a bit earlier and there's some great guitar work there. Um, but in terms of your, um, I guess, the way that you approach songwriting, um I did read in one of your interviews that you said that you start from a really good guitar part or you find something, you know, musical that really feels right um, and has an emotion to it and then you work and build it out from there. Is that still how you approach songwriting?
3: Yeah, I think as I've gotten better at the narrative style of songwriting, um, you know, there's always that thing you read John Lennon that imagine he wrote it on like a a napkin, you know, on a plane and he just came up with those words and and you're like wow, that's pretty impressive (laughs) that that's John Lennon. Um, But as I think I've got better at songwriting, I have started to have lyrical ideas in my head and then, uh, but I will, you know, so I will go both ways, but try and start with a vibe. Mm. Um, Especially on this new album, I just really wanted to start with like stories, you know, good stories and, um, and an emotion and something that makes you feel something. So that's why a lot of the songs on this record are about things I've seen around me, you know, there's a song about Mouse um, the rough sleeper who was um, murdered down near Flinders Street, there's that song Resorberati, yep. and you know that Resorberati started, I wrote that song after I saw a Four Corners documentary with the um, the first, the whistleblower you know, the first mm-hmm. guard that came out and, and he was just saying he was talking about um, the riot in Manus Island and he was saying, I just, I just thought these people, you know, they're supposed to be in our care, in our care, and I started with that, and um so I just I want I want to tell human stories. I want to, I want to pull people in, and I want it. I want there to be empathy, I want people to feel something in the songs and if I don't feel it, I can't expect them to feel it.
0: Yeah, well, you've, it's certainly, you've accomplished that. Oh, Because thank you. <laughs> this album is a storytelling album um, and it is very empathetic um, and certainly also then reflected through into your live performances which I just bring it to a whole nother level when you experience it Yeah, yourself.
3: It, it's, you know, as you're... know, there was a time when, you know, I loved Tim Rogers and there was a time I used to try to like be more rock and roll like Tim or, or, you know, I love Paul Kelly and I used you know, there's all those things. And then as I've gotten better, at, I I feel like now when I'm on stage, I am just myself. I am Mm -hmm. who I am. And, um, and I think with this album, this is the first time that the record and who I am, the whole thing is sort of really coming together. You know, I really want to be unpretentious on stage, but I want it to be a show. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I'm a big Springsteen, Mellencamp fan and I just love the way they find those little stories, those little small human stories, but they make them epic mm. because, you know, it's a big thing being a human being like <laughs> there's There's a lot going on <laughs> in our minds and our hearts and, yeah. um, and music is, is a big part and songs are a big tra- part of trying to make sense of that.
0: Yeah. Well, let's go into one of them. Um, your first single from this album uh, is called Beach Fires. Yep. And uh, it's about, well, I'll let you t- you introduce it because uh, you'll do it far better than I. Um, but uh, I'm talking to Karis Thompson. He's in Melbourne at the moment. He's in our studios about to play Beach Fires. So, Karis, I'll throw it to you.
3: No worries. Um well, this is a song called Beach Fires. I... Um I wrote it after I did a gig down in San Remo and I, uh, I was having a beer with the guy after the gig and I said, oh, how are things different since the, um, since the desalination plant came to town? And he said, well, let's just say I, uh, I used to leave my car door open when I went surfing and you can't do that now. <laughs> and uh, just a song, I guess, is about something that's happened all around Australia at the moment, the, the old crystal methamphetamine. Hope you like it.
4: Taught me to chase a dragon while my sister was downstairs. Threw your drugs and money around like you didn't care. Came down from Melbourne, you were working on the plant. Sometimes I think the devil sent you, sink me in this island. I used to watch friends' faces in the flickin' of beach fires. All I see is strangers, and dead eyes. Steve round the corner, sewing the pins onto the dark Got his hangers on lined up Every Friday in a row Remember the day you first showed him How to cut up a full ounce Gave him a name and a number Keys to every house around I used to watch friends' faces In the flickin' of beach fires All I see is strangers And dead eyes bowl light the flame. The first time won't come again. No stop to no residue remains. And this town I was born in, is never gonna be. All around, can you feel it hitching now? Everyone's a stranger with dead eyes. I've had mates I've known since school kicking in my door, chasing me for what I owe, hoping they can steal a score. Every street's line, families and lovers torn. Everything we had left us always wanted more. I used to watch friends' faces in the flicking of beach fires. All I see is strangers and dead eyes. Take the bowl, light the flame. The first time won't come again. The stop to no residue remain White smoke's all around Can you feel it hit you now? Everyone's a stranger With dead eyes I used to think I'd never Want to move away I hope he skips land as far enough Hope I never see you again Jobs long since finished You decided to stay You and Steve King's every little world Selling crystal like a play. And this town i How could have we been ready for you and everything that came The white smoke's all around, beach fires have long gone out, all I see is strangers, dead eyes, dead eyes,
0: dead eyes. Beautiful there, <laughs> thank you, Karis. Thanks so much. Um, that that last line there, "dead eyes," I think really is very poignant. Um, and I'm really interested in how you came to that song, um, and and the kinds of things that you observed, which it's reflected in those lyrics. But what really um, set you off on on that particular song to start? you know, reflecting what you were seeing and to talk about this issue of of the ice epidemic?
3: Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's always a thing about songs. I think it's really difficult to write about stuff if you haven't experienced it a little bit. So it's very hard to talk about drugs if you haven't had some experience with drugs. And, um, you know, in my 20s, you know, Frio, I mean, look at WA. People always go Ben Cousins. You know, it's like <laughs> that's like that's like everyone I knew growing yeah. up in WA in their twenties It was just like it's just something about Perth and Freeman. I don't know, don't know what <laughs> what's going on there. But and your song uh, Grow to yeah. Overthrow"
0: talks yeah. about that quite so in well.
3: detail. <laughs> so you know the Ben Cousins story. that's pretty Western Australian. You know, it's mm. um, it's uh, it's funny. So when I s- wanted to write that song, you know, I I thought about my own yeah my own twenties and the first line is, is about the first time yes yeah, someone showed me how to smoke uh, meth and you know I really didn't see the point of it myself but um you know um it certainly has caught on it's been pretty popular but um so I, I guess I put a bit of that in and um, a bit of people that I know and um, the dead eyes line with, with this album you know what I have got better and I think a lot of songwriters would say this is the longer you write songs more for the better you get at rewriting you know when you start writing a song the first time your song writes like this precious thing and you just you can't touch it it's like it's my amazing thing don't don't (laughs) dare suggest i change anything it's my art man yeah and then you know as you get better and better with all writing i think you become more attached but less willing you're more willing to play with it and take on other people's opinions and that's why you employ producers and stuff like Mm. that and so especially with this song, Beach Fires, it was... I wrote it, then I took it to my good friend Greg Arnold from Things of Stone and Wood, who's been like a writing partner. He produced three albums for me and he's also been a great partner to bounce things off and he's been in Switzerland for the last five years. So I sort of sent it to him and first time he heard it, he was like, wow, this is just... This is what you're trying to do, you know, and um, he loved it. So I sort of wrote the song, worked on it with him and then I took it to Joel Joel Quartermain who produced this record who um, people know him from Eskimo Joe and he did all the Meg Mac stuff and then you know the process started again you know and so we rewrote that chorus and um but the Dead Eyes line that just came about from really trying to rewrite you know that thing I'm talking about of trying to make your words just count you know so you've got three words you just got to make it work and I just threw a bunch out there and then this thing Dead Eyes came and I thought that's is that too intense and you know you, you sing it a bit and um my good friend Neil Murray he's great songwriter huge influence on me he always said this thing about songs you've got to sing them you know don't don't look at the words too much you've got to pick it up sing it see how it sings and I sang that and I just felt felt this sort of um this hits it and I think it's telling a story that's happening a lot and um and it's a story you know a lot of my friends have been through I'm sure everyone's friends have been through I'm sure some people are going through that story themselves and hopefully we work out something to do with it but um in terms of politics, I think prohibition's not the uh, answer for crystal methadone, no. <laughs> that's for sure.
0: Yeah, and it, it's a huge issue. Um, but, but you don't... You, in your songs, you're not judging anyone and that's the beautiful thing about it is that you're talking about the complexity of human life. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that we're all very deeply um, emotive and feel a lot um, and have many different experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you mentioned Greg Arnold there. I know that uh, he performed with you at the Corner Hotel because I was at that gig and it was a really great one because um, your your musical styles really work together so yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you, you... You worked with Greg Arnold on another song, um, Lies, which uh, is yeah. the second single, and I believe he uh, he also co-wrote that with you?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, that was the same sort of thing. I had the um, had the verses and he came up... I had the chorus... I know he had the verse actually yeah but just that thing of um, you know it's a scary thing when you're a young songwriter co-writing um, but then once you get into it you know it's like two heads are better than one kind of thing and um, yeah and I'm really proud of this song and it's 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 the one that's had sort of the big win you know Double J are playing it and um, it's going on to ABC local radio nationwide so it's it's funny in my career, it's like I've been doing this for like 20 years and it's like finally I'm getting radio Well, <laughs> It's a, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a, the, th- the thing with, with songs I think is, um, yeah, the, the empathy and, and the, the storytelling I've never really loved, especially when you're trying to write. You know, with Ireland I really wanted to write a record. That's why I'm so pleased that I'm on, on this show because it's, you know, about Australia and politics and, I wanted to make an album that said something and I wanted to say something about Australia. Mm. But, you know, songs that yell at you and tell you, you're wrong, this is the right way, no-one listens to those. People listen to stories. And, you know, all I want to do with this record is present these different, you know, situations and try and create the... get people in touch with the human aspect of it and they might think about things slightly differently and I think as an artist, that's all you can do is document and try and get discussion... Um, I don't think you can tell people the right or the wrong way. And um, if if you make the story good enough, you know, it gets past... With all these things, politics, ideology, people put up walls, you know. They put up uh, walls about what they believe and what they don't believe. And a song is a human story and human stories get past these walls. And so in that way, I think songs can be really useful in promoting discussion that might be harder to have otherwise.
0: I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and um, and that's why um, I, we wanted to have you on the show, apart from you being a fantastic uh, musician. We, well, songwriting is part of that. It's absolutely equally important to be a great performer, a great musician and a great songwriter. And I think you've got all of those things going on. So we're going to hear um, this song, Lies, which yeah. uh, um, for everyone, uh, hopefully this... this two great versions obviously this acoustic one we're going to hear and then uh, the full one that you'll hear on the album which has a whole range of other uh, instruments involved and you can hear that um at the live performance on this saturday which i'll give you the details of but uh we'll we'll head into that and i'll i'll let you take this away no worries.
4: Let's pay the cost, get what you want. Who cares what's lost? You never had your back against the wall, but it's tired of the world. So sure now I see my whole life. I built you up, you told me down. prepare your measured lines stick to script love runs on time you never had your back against the wall an entitled world so sure now I see my heart
0: so hard not to tap your feet and get really into that one, Karis. They think
4: I tap tapping my foot there too. <laughs> yeah, I felt
0: it. <laughs> uh, that's Karis Thompson there with Lies. Um, that's a, his second single off his album, his new album, Island. Um, Karis, what, uh, just briefly what inspired you to to put that song together because um, I know some people have said it's a really boppy song for something about so- <laughs> <laughs> something so biting. and
3: <laughs> Yeah, uh, I started writing that song, of course, um, when, uh, you know, Tony Abbott was in and um, that was the line about the uh, burnt hands, you know, burn my hands. and um, But I was talking with my wife about it and, and she was uh, saying, oh, this would be, you know, I think this song would be really powerful if you could try and make it be about either a relationship or um, politics and um, so I started writing it like that and and it's a really funny one because I thought I'll I'll make sure it's open enough because, you know, I mean, obviously I hate Abbott and um, I really don't dig Turnbull and the whole Lib thing but, you know, I still, I don't forget that, um, you know, the uh, Labor have done some really terrible things, you know, and their their position on refugees is just, it's disgusting and shocking, you know. Um, So I really want it to be open enough just to be about all the leaders who are sort of letting us down with these things at the moment um you know there's just not much compassion out there and then you know trump won, won in america
0: <laughs> very <laughs> and, timely and i was
3: just playing the song actually that could be about him so it's um and i think that partly might be why it's really getting the radio players it's sort of open enough that people can read whatever they want in it you know and um and uh, i think you know when you're talking about songwriting you do need to be there are things you need to be a little bit careful of and sometimes a really heavy song, if it's with a really slow tempo, it can just be too, like, laconic and so sometimes you need to sort of mix it up and, I mean, you know that classic song, um, Suzanne Vega, you know, My Name Is Luca, like, I mean, you know, you listen to that, it's yeah, a beautiful song and you listen to the words, you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> that is savage, you know, so yeah. sometimes if you want to draw the listener in, you need to um, not use what they're going to expect.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this ability to, for people to relate to your music, your lyrics in particular, but just in general, like uh, you, you reflect back some of the things that have happened to you across your whole career in all of your songs. So, you know, some of them are, are love songs and broken heart Hearted, you know, yep. scenarios. <clears throat> um, and, uh, and then, you know, some are political, some cover social issues. There's so much um, within your repertoire. Um, but I think that pretty much all of them resonate with people at different points in their life, which is something which I find is so unique in your particular, um, you know, I guess, list of songs is that, yeah, there's just... You can always find a Karis song for the yeah. right moment, is what I'm <laughs> trying to say, um, which is, you know, it's pretty good to to have that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a thing, um, you know, I've been writing songs since I was 12 and as um, soon as I le- finished school I, I mucked around at uni for an hour and a half, I mean, an hour <laughs> and a half, about an hour and a half <laughs> for nearly. a year and a half. Yeah. But um, I sort of, I didn't make it through there. And this is what I've done. So this is, you know, my degree is in songwriting really and, and performing and um, and I guess... You know, there's lots of young bands that, that they're, they're hip and they're cool and they're big and it's all great. And then you know, it gets hard and they go, "Oh, actually, this is pretty shit." <laughs> <You know? laughs> there's no money. And but you know, I remember I had this conversation with um, Killing uh, the Ella Hooper from Killing Heidi once, and she used this term, "lifer." <laughs> you know, the are <laughs> lifers, yeah. and it's like, "This is who I am. This is I write songs and I perform." and um, and i think people can see that in in the songs like i'm not that kind of artist that writes this sort of twisted you know and i love that kind of writing you know i wish i could write like that but i'm not that i'm i'm really what you see is what you get and part of what i'm living is is what i'm writing about and that that's who i am you know i care about care about the world and Um, you know, I think Australia is a great country, but I I think it's got some massive, massive problems at the moment. And so I'm I'm writing about those.
0: Yeah. And just um, quickly on your performances, because, you know, part of it is, um, you know, some people might have a greater strength, (laughs) you know, and and they're, you know, a better songwriter, a better performance. But I think that, you know, you're equally talented in both, which is quite a rare thing oh, to have.
3: That's why I'm coming on the show yeah, anytime just I'm in Melbourne.
0: You well, it's actually true. I'm not making oh, it you. up. I mean, I've been yeah. to, I don't even, I haven't. I can't even count how many gigs and I've known your music for 13 years, yeah. which I, I did have to count the other day. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, well, what brings your fans back is because your performances are so engaging and so um, unpretentious. So. D- are just emotive and they, they're they really um, yeah affecting um, yeah. when you're there in a great way, in a very yeah. joyful way, um, in a beautiful way. There's, you know, a lot of you bring um, people through kind of a real dynamic of, um, yeah. of yeah. emotions throughout the show and a lot of dancing and singing, yeah. I must say. Um, but how do you see, you know, the performance aspect of your career? Because that's really been pivotal in getting your music out there given that you have released your music independently. Yeah. Um, you know, what... How have you developed your performance aspect, and and like how critical is it to you to and and how do you perceive these gigs that you do? Like how how does it make you feel, and and what what g- brings you joy from it?
3: Yeah, well, this I mean, especially with this new album, because there are those songs that really I think I'm um, tr- trying to talk about that the human experience, and I think some of the songs are quite, you know, they really connect emotionally with people and intellectually with people, and um, and. And I've always had the like the rock that's you know that thing that's never been a problem, but this thing of trying to take people on a journey and get to the end of the gig, and you know if they come on Saturday to the Workers Club and, and feel like they've sort of had an experience or they've been, there's been a connection, you know, a connection between myself and them, but also people in the room just thinking about these issues. Just, you know, even just the thing with a rock and roll gig, you know, it's like connecting with people, going there with a beer, you know, you can stay at home and watch X Factor on TV and that'll be a waste of time. Or you go to a gig, you have a beer, there's people in the room with you, you have this communal experience. And performance is just incredible like that. And it's something that's never going to go away because it's so special. But in terms of my own performance, I mean, I don't sing like Nathan Gaunt or (laughs) I don't play guitar like him. I think if I was a greater guitar player or a better singer, you know, I might not have been as good a performer because it's like the thing with musicians and performers is you you make up for things that you lack, you know, it's like if you, you make up for the things that you're not so good at with getting better at other things. So I've just always wanted to try to have this X factor thing to my performance, this other thing, and I can't quite put my finger on what it is but just that sort of connection. And, um, and I've had to learn how to do it because in live performance for me it's been survival, you know, when you're touring through Europe and you're going to... I remember once we played in, um, ah, we played in Belgium in this like tiny little pub, and you know there was like four people on stage, and there was four of us in the band, and we were like, well, if there's more people in the you know crowd than on the stage, you're doing all right. And one more person came It was like, we've got five people, you know. And what you do in that situation is, you know, it's easy to get dejected and go, damn, there's only five people but you, that's, you can't do that as a performer. You've got to go, I've got to do the best bloody show I ever could, you know. You've got to think of Springsteen, those guys. If he played to five people, he would put on the best show you've ever, he would, it'd be better than if he was playing to a stadium. Mm. Because next time, those people are going to talk and they come back and there's 20 so, you know, next time it's 50 and that's the way I've done it my whole life and it's been it's been a hard way to do it I would have loved to have been signed to a major I would have loved to have had radio played but I haven't had that so this is the way I've done it and um you know I think it's finally Starting to work.
0: (laughs) Well, it definitely worked on Saturday, because there was a woman who told me that uh, her friend in Holland said she had to go to this gig uh, for Karis Thompson, but she'd never heard of you, and she lives in Australia, (laughs) So, (laughs) and she loved it, by the way, Um, but, you know, it's just, you have that huge fan base in Germany, in Britain, um, across Europe, and you have toured in Europe a lot, um, but... You know, this it is true. Um, it, it probably has potentially developed you in a whole different way that you wouldn't have developed had you been signed. But if you think, do you think it, about it that way? Or
3: yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I think um, you know, I have a fan base. It's a it's a cult fan base. It but is it's, very It's cult. really <laughs> loyal, you know, people. And often the way I get more people to my gigs, you know, like we promote and we do all this stuff. But often it's someone saying to their friend, "You got to come to this gig. You know, this would be cool," or telling someone, "Come and see this and that thing." it's pretty amazing when that starts happening and, um, you know, I have amazing support from my fan base and, um, you know, people really, especially on this tour, people really get the trip I want to take them on, you know, when I ask them to be quiet, I don't have to ask them, they're just quiet, you know, except there's always a couple of drunks. Except, but yeah,
0: the two or three guys. <laughs> they were
3: like the biggest fans there, though, they They were. <laughs> but, um, it's, you know, and, um... I've I've never, I mean, I've never, I never like going to a show and seeing a performance, just this flat, same thing from start to end. Like, to me, that's just boring. Like, I want to go on a journey and I want dynamics and I want different kinds of songs and I want to, and I also want it to rock out, you know. Yeah. Because that's an important part of a live show, I think, dancing. And um, so I've just always tried to incorporate all those things and, and I'm getting better and better at making it feel like a cohesive thing now.
0: Yeah, well, that's a great segue because <laughs> uh, you can go and see Karis Thompson this Saturday. It's at his Melbourne launch of the album Island. Um, it's at the Workers' Club in Fitzroy. It starts uh, at one thirty and it moves into 5. And uh, it's kid-friendly, Karis?
3: Yeah, that's how you can tell um, I'm getting a bit older. A lot of my <laughs> fans, they are, uh, you know, a lot of them were... I mean, it's amazing how many weddings of been to or, or people have told me about that we met at one of your gigs you know and now I've got kids and um, so it's uh, it's going through a bit of a stage where everyone's got little kids so I, I mean I like the matinee show actually and um, I really like it because of the energy I think the energy is different at a gig during the day um, you know as a gig starts to get later people get more drunk and that's cool as an energy as well but there's like a pure energy that comes with the matinee show and um, it really works for my stuff
0: yeah it does yeah bring,
3: bring the kids some um, yeah they're free and um you know, uh, you might stand a chance of steering them away from reality television. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there is a, there is one song on the album about that. I think it's uh, Starved Myself Pretty that yeah, one. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, and you've got the band with you. Um, how Who have you got with you on Saturday? Uh,
3: I've got uh, Jason McGann who pl- has played drums for me for my, my whole career pretty much. He was in, re- in the original John Butler Trio, so I know him. And a good friend of mine, Tom Fisher, who's actually uh, his... It's a, uh, Jim Fisher's son, who's a very famous West Australian musician. He played on the last uh, the last bluegrass Paul Kelly record, and Tom's actually playing Tuesday night down at um, the Wesleyan, actually doing one of his own gigs. Um, and then I've got my fr- uh, Mo Wilson, who was an original True Believer mm. on keys, and uh, Nathan Gorn on guitar. So I've got this like five piece band. You know, it's um it's killing it's me wonderful. financially but yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's it's uh, this is the best band. You know, I've always had my solo thing and my band thing and the band thing's been like a dancey rockin' thing and the solo thing's where I sort of get more um, singer-songwriter and this is the first band where I feel like the whole thing is coming together and, you know, I just, I always used to sort of do a band tour and think, oh, I'm looking forward to a solo show and with this band, I'm like, I just want to play with this band. Yeah. You know? It's really big and its its um, it's got all the the instrumental parts that we can really get the emotion in the songs.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone, uh, please check it out. You can book online um, and it's at the Workers' Club in Fitzroy this Saturday Starting one thirty, Nathan gone opening um, and Karis will be performing uh, his live set with his band and it's going to be amazing. Um, and you can check out his album Island on iTunes and all other uh, mediums in general. And yep. uh, there'll be CDs for sale there. So if you Absolutely, want to get the hard yeah. <laughs> copy, do. Because I think that's important. If you're, if you're important. old school, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah like me. <laughs> so, uh, so we'll be closing out with uh, a song which is just beautiful. It's the last song on your album, Gone But Not Forgotten and you mentioned before uh, Mouse who was a rough sleeper in Melbourne who you had a brief you know, meeting by chance with um, and then heard about this story. Could you just give a, a little bit of an introduction as to what it meant to you? And
3: Yeah, well, if anyone's ever been, um, you know, you just walk south of Flinders Street. If you're going down to the aquarium, I used to always take my son to the aquarium and um, you could see uh, this, this guy Mouse, he'd set up a... Had a little bit of a camp there and that became a bit of a, a bit of a camp for um for rough sleepers. I remember in one day I was walking past and he said he offered me a bong. He said, Hey mate, you want a bong? I was oh, with my son going to the aquarium. But thank that's very very <laughs> kind, very nice of you. Seemed like a really nice guy. And I mean I didn't know his name was Mouse at that point. I just saw his someone sleeping rough and um and I'd really wanted to write about this issue of homelessness. And, you know, with everyone's telling we Australia the second richest country in the world, or whatever the hell it is, you know. And then at the same time you look around and you're seeing more and more people sleeping rough and you're going, how does this happen when we're making all this money and wages are so high? And uh, I used to do a bit of landscaping work and I did, used to do some um, stuff out at the um, at North Melbourne at the uh, at the Salvos um, drop-in centre there and I, I saw this thing, 21 bucks a night, you know, it can cost you to get a bed there and I had this idea about wanting to write this song and then when Mouse uh, was murdered, I think it's three years ago now there was a lot of articles about him in the newspaper and i read about it and i was pretty touched by it and then i was going down to the aquarium again with my son and and i saw that set up a bit of a shrine to him you know where his camp was and and this this graffiti gone but not forgotten and um and i went home and i wrote this song <laughs>
4: past Flinders Street Station Where the poor lose their money a crown And kids queue for the aquarium They cut a good man down A few bonds by the river in the evening ginger wine We had some good sunsets He was a friend of mine The world's forgotten us You can get a room in North Melbourne If you got 21 bucks police harassment and threatening drugs
3: That can't get the highest price. The chasing expressions of interest on the latest lifestyle high rise.
0: and that one gone but not forgotten by karis thompson who is live in the studio thank you so much karis for being very generous with your time and your music today
3: thank you so much for having me it's been amazing
0: it's been a pleasure um and just beautiful to hear that acoustic version so beautiful um I, uh, I'll just reiterate you can see Karis on Saturday at the Workers' Club in Fitzroy and we'll tweet the details. It's on our Facebook too. Absolutely uh, so pleased to be able to share um, this Fantastic expertise of Professor David Lindemeyer, who is from the Australian National University in Canberra. He uh, is not in Canberra today. He's actually at Lamington National Park in Queensland, and he joins us by the phone uh, in the forest right now, actually, to talk about the proposed Great Forest National Park, which uh, which we're hoping to get up um, in Victoria, and it's really critical that this happens and. David is going to share with us why that's so. So thanks David for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure Amy. And, um, and so first of all this issue of of a great forest national park um has been around for a, a significant time um, and you're you've been researching um the central highlands uh where this proposed uh, national park or expansion of a park um is to be and the the mountain ash uh forests in particular and something that uh our listeners may know is uh, of the Leadbeater's possum which is victoria's uh faunal symbol emblem sorry um it is in danger it's critically endangered actually um of of becoming extinct um and and that's not the only ecological disaster um that is looming for this this area in victoria um david with this great forest national park why is it so important that we protect the forest um that exists in the central highlands victoria and why aren't like what's happening at the moment that means we're not
5: Okay, so there's, there's lots of points there, Amy. There's, let's go through a little bit of a checklist of the key reasons. The first thing is the Great Forest National Park is critical for the conservation of Leadbeater's possum. So Victorian government work and work led by the, the University of Melbourne shows that almost all of the mountain ash forest needs to be conserved to protect that species. And it's not only Leadbeater's possum, other animals such as the greater glider are now in significant decline in those forests and the only way to sensibly protect them is to protect the very large old trees that those animals need. So that's the first reason, a biodiversity conservation reason. The second one is an economic reason and that is that the potential economic benefits of a major national park are enormous. We've done the environmental accounts and the economic accounts for that region and without any infrastructure development, tourism is worth $260 million to the regional economy each year whereas logging is worth nine million dollars so there's a 72 times difference in terms of contribution to the economy so there's enormous untapped potential there to turn this area into a, a a huge opportunity for jobs a huge opportunity for environmental protection the third reason is that almost all of melbourne's water comes from those catchments in that central highlands area And so the Great Forest National Park is critical to protecting the city's water supply in the future and keeping a lid on water costs. Otherwise, Melbourne's water supply costs are going to just explode out of control. So there are many really key reasons, from ecological reasons, but economic reasons, water supply reasons and employment reasons why you would go with a Great Forest National Park.
0: But we're currently wonder- not protecting this park and and those ecological and economic reasons aren't being um, really given enough gravity. Are they with with this this logging that has existed in the park um, or in this area for quite a while? What is the effect of, of logging um, for the forest, just how detrimental has it been and and will it continue to be?
5: So clearfell logging is extremely, significantly detrimental to, to these entire ecosystems. It removes the large old trees in these forests, which are critical for 40 species of, of uh, vertebrates, including critically endangered ones, such as leadbetter's possum. Logging also changes the fire regimes. So what happens is that logging makes these forests more prone to very high severity fire, and that's what we found after the 2009 wildfires. So there's a major fire burden that's added to this system for another fifty years after logging is finished. So this is a this is a really critical point. So we have also the removal of old growth forests. So old growth forests stopped being logged in nineteen ninety, but we still have the hangover of that, which means it'll be another hundred years until new areas of old growth are recruited. Now old growth is really important for suppressing fire severity. It's really important for producing the most water and uh, old growth is also spectacular in terms of a tourist attraction. So we have very little old growth forest left in this system and we need to work hard to restore old growth to its previous levels. So the, the national park is critical to head off the major drivers of decline in the system, which is widespread industrial clear-felling.
0: And, and um, so... Go ahead.
5: Really, economically, economically, environmentally and socially, it's quite clear that the Great Forest National Park is absolutely essential to the integrity of that region and also as a critical part of uh, Victoria's economy going forward.
0: And, and in your um, keynote lecture about two years ago uh, on this issue, you mentioned that 1.2% of the mountain ash in this forest has been unlogged and unburned, which means that there's a barely any as you say of old growth that has been um, untouched um, but also that uh, the old growth cover in the system has declined by 95 to 97 percent of what it once was um, and and you mentioned there that it is spectacular to see and um, and there are some pictures of you online standing next to these trees and you are pretty small <laughs> in comparison yeah. and and one of the examples you give is of the uh, the Sydney Opera House being I think think it was uh 67 meters tall and actually um in comparison these trees can grow up to 132 meters tall and that's pretty much double um the size of the sydney opera house so it's really ginormous <laughs> in terms of these these old growth forests but also you say that um that that's the old growth forests are where these endangered species um reside is that the case
5: uh, yes, that's that's partly true. So old-growth forest is critical because old-growth is where we get the most big old trees. And the big old trees are critical habitats for these animals. And when I say big old trees, we're talking about trees approaching 100 metres tall and up to 4 metres in diameter and over 190 years in age and going up to 550 years in age. So these are really important, iconic pieces of forest environmental infrastructure if we want to call them that in these kinds of forests and lots of things don't happen without these big old trees and that's what's in in vanishingly short supply across these ecosystems and logging is one of the things that removes these big old trees either directly during the logging process or indirectly when the forest is burned to remove the logging slash after after cutting so Old growth used to be somewhere between 30 to 60% of these forests. Now it's actually less than 1.2. It's 1.16% of mountain ash forest estate is old growth. And for alpine ash, the uh, the other species, main species of tree in that system, it's 0.47 of 1% is old growth. So these are appalling statistics. And for some reason, neither the present government... Nor the present opposition seems to resonate with some of these frightening statistics about what has to be done to change the management in these systems.
0: Well, uh, you know, before the the state election, um, Labor wasn't going to absolutely commit to this Great Forest National Park, but they set up a task force to discuss it. Um, you know, I'm sure that's been many task forces on this issue. I,
5: I have to interrupt you there, Amy. That's not true. Oh, okay, the day before- no, the day before the last state election, I received an email from uh, former Minister Lisa Neville's office saying that the Great Forest National Park would happen and it would happen within six months and they were going to set up a task force to, to create the pathway to do that.
0: Uh, so apologies. I, have,
5: I have documented evidence to show that the, the, the uh, former opposition now government had committed to the, to the National Park and we're going to go ahead with it.
0: Interesting. And now,
5: uh, th- several years later... They haven't delivered on their promise.
0: No, and
5: I'm afraid governments need to deliver on their promise to have credibility with their with their voters.
0: Absolutely. Well, yes, my my source there was Fairfax, so they weren't were clearly wrong. <laughs> we're speaking with Lisa Neville, and maybe she didn't say make clear that she'd committed. That really does change things a lot because, um, well, I, th- I to me it doesn't change things a lot, but. To others who see promises um, as being really important, it changes a lot. Um, and Lily Dambrosio is the the minister who's replaced Lisa Neville. Um, how have there been any movements within government to give way on this issue? And you know, is the reason why they haven't moved on it because of the logging industry and its um, its influence? Uh,
5: there's no doubt that the logging industry has huge influence in this area. I think uh, economically totally in an unjust way because the value of the logging industry is a tiny fraction of the value of the tourism industry and a tiny value of tiny fraction of the value of the the uh, water industry from from these areas and what the logging industry is presently demanding is continued access to large areas of forest to keep cutting and I notice even today the opposition leader Matthew Guy is saying that he's going to continue to maintain access to timber from these forests to keep a sawmill going. The problem is that there's very little timber left and so I don't know where he's going to get that timber from. My suspicion is that he's going to open up the water catchments to logging or he's going to open up national parks to logging. Either way, that's a complete nightmare and that's ridiculous because the values of water and the values of tourism through national parks way exceed the value of, t- of timber. And, and so i'm I'm calling on Matthew Guy to make it clear where he's going to get this extra timber from to run these sawmills, because our analyses show that that timber simply doesn't exist. Our analyses show that really we've got about five to ten years of sawlogs left before the sawlog resource is depleted. And we've actually known this for about five to ten years now, particularly after the two thousand and nine fires. So, Essentially, what really needs to happen is we need to transition the logging industry out of native forests very quickly while um, making sure that that's done in a socially just way, largely because the resource simply isn't there anymore and the value of other resources like water and tourism far exceed the the timber value.
0: And would you agree um, that... uh, that Paper makers, and that is, um, you know, really where most of this this uh, wood or timber actually ends up going to is paper. And this, you have a great uh, graph in your in one of your lectures about exactly where each percentage of of this um, timber goes to. But one of them, um, one thing you mentioned is that the paper makers um, actually prefer plantation feedstock. Is there a way to transition or move into um, a plantation form of logging that doesn't affect these um, really important habitats?
5: Absolutely. It's straightforward to make those transitions. In most countries around the world, they use softwood, i.e. conifers like pine trees, to make paper. That's what happens virtually all all the way through North America and elsewhere. And it's not so hard to do that in Australia. In fact, we have extensive extensive paper and pulper mills, for example, run by Vivi that make paper from plantation feedstock. We have a, a study in the Tumut region in New South Wales where Vizi has been making paper for well over a decade from from pine uh, pine sources. The most important thing here is that if, if Australian paper continues to make its paper from mountain ash forests, which are themselves now critically endangered, then there's no way that that paper can be certified as being ecologically sustainably produced So it can't get a green stamp like you would get through the Forest Stewardship Council. So that means that you get rock-bottom prices for the paper and you can't sell it into most markets. So, for example, most books that we have written over the last 20 years, there's been more than 40 of them, have been on FSC-certified paper. That means that the paper that's come from non-sustainable Sources such as the mountain ash forest basically is rock bottom value. So remember that these are public forests and these public forests need to be managed for the maximum public good, and it's exactly not what is happening at the moment
0: couldn't agree more and one of the the points that you make is that you know climate change is a huge issue and a huge problem that we face and um that these these forests this forest in particular is one of the world's most carbon dense forests and that it has enormous carbon storage potential could you share with us how these forests are critical to us um you know dealing with climate change and also uh, reaching out our targets of reducing carbon emissions
5: and yeah, that's a very good point Amy. So in these forests we have some old growth stands can be up to 2000 tons of carbon biomass per hectare. So this is an enormous amount of an enormous amount of carbon that's stored not only in the standing trees but but also in the understory and in the ground layer and also below the ground. In fact we haven't even measured how much carbon there is below the ground but it's likely to be very large. So what you say is correct, these are indeed some of the most carbon dense forests anywhere on the planet. And when we have 100 to 200,000 hectares of this kind of forest within a large protected area like the Great Forest National Park, we are potentially capable of storing millions and millions and millions of extra tons of carbon on an annual basis. Now, if there was a carbon methodology to, to set up by the federal government, then these forests would be worth a very large amount of money to the public of Victoria for their carbon storage service. What we also know is that when forests are logged, very large amounts of emissions uh, go to the atmosphere. First of all, when the forest is cut, you need to to burn up a lot of fossil fuel to cut the forest down and then to cart the timber about to, to a pulp mill or a sawmill. Then we also know that the, when, once the logging slash, that's the true heads and the lateral branches and the bark, is burnt, we get a large amount of emissions from the forest then. And then the remaining logging slash undergoes accelerated decomposition in the forest as well. So for prolonged periods of time, the forest becomes a net emitter of carbon to the atmosphere. And so by far the best thing to do is to actually leave those trees uh, in the ground, as it were, or on the surface of the soil, to continue to accumulate carbon throughout its lives. And we've, uh, other people have discovered that trees continue to sequester large amounts of carbon, even when they get very old. And old forests have significantly more carbon than younger forests. So really the science is in on carbon storage, And it's a really important service that those forest ecosystems give us in terms of fighting dangerous climate change by locking up large amounts of carbon and keeping them in a sustained form that's stable for prolonged periods of time. So, really important resource. In fact, the carbon value, even under a nominal carbon value under the Emissions Reduction Fund that the federal government has in place of only $12.23 per tonne, the carbon value of the forest way exceeds the timber value of the same forests. So uh, not only on a water value, on a tourism value, and on a biodiversity value, but also a carbon value, it's quite clear that you need to move towards a Great Forest National Park. And that's why I'm such a strong advocate for for sensible decision-making based on evidence to move towards
2: that outcome.
0: Absolutely. The facts are in, the science is in, and you you and your team and many others have been contributing to this science for so long um, and advocating on this issue. What can... Our listeners and and people in Victoria do to convince the government that this is the right thing to do and that we need a great forest national park because you know it is one and a half hours away from the CBD of Melbourne. This is a very, it's on our doorstep. Um, You know, it is great for tourism, but these forests have inherent value within themselves to the environment, but also just by being there. what what do you think needs to happen to make this this forest become a reality and how do we put pressure back on the victorian government
5: so what needs to happen is several things the first one is that people need to to uh, get uh, get writing they need to write to their local politicians they need to go and see their local members they need to uh, join the the great forest national park support program so that's a uh, an online web thing they, they, uh, they need to get on social media, they need to get active. Remember that in many cases it only takes a small number of very active people to, to make the changes that need to happen. That's what happened with women voting. There's a small number of very dedicated people that actually made things change, obviously for the much better. And we know that there's actually a huge amount of groundswell support for the Great Forest National Park. People have to become more vocal and more active and get more involved to, make, to push governments to make sensible decisions based on evidence and be, based on good outcomes for the state and to put to bed some of these ridiculous arguments from the Liberal opposition that they're going to find timber in water catchments and in national parks and start logging those when those areas are way more important economically uh, in terms of their water value and their tourism and, and biodiversity values. So we need to stop those kinds of ridiculous calls to, to log catchments of log national parks. We need people writing to their politicians, we need people getting involved and engaged on something that will be a really important legacy for Melbournians and Victorians and Australians going forward, not for the next two or three years but the next 50 to 100 years.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, David, thank you so much for sharing with us the science and the facts of the matter and advocating so passionately for, for something that's just absolutely necessary it has to happen it must happen and um there's just no other choice otherwise we will see um the extinction of many species and you know great environments lost um i hope you have a great time in queensland in the forest
5: uh thank you amy and i'm looking forward to being back in the forest in victoria uh in another couple of weeks okay Um, great yeah, and thank you very much for your time and the chance to f- explain what the outcomes are here.
0: No, it's, it's our pleasure. It's really, really critical. Thank you, David. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple rrr website. Hope to see you again next time.